0: Get ready for Giving Tuesday on November the 28th. Join us in supporting the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's vital work by helping us reach our $45,000 goal. The best part? Generous donors will match the first $12,000, doubling your impact. Donate today to lock in your gift and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for updates. You know, faith in many tradition works in absolutes, or maybe another word is certainty. Therefore. There is a comfort in reading scriptures with a black and white, you know, uh, definite or certain mindset. What might be the limitations of this particular way of understanding, reading, and applying the scriptures? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year, we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to and island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden lord Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grom. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First time listeners and long time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, a model ministry, and Gardner Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 406-3205, and visit gardner-web.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Robin Whitaker. She's the Associate Professor of New Testament at Pilgrim Theological College at the University of Divinity in Melbourne. She's also the co-host of By the Well podcast and the author of a new book, Even the Devil Quotes Scripture. Robin, thank you for joining the conversation.
1: Thank you, Andy. It's wonderful to be speaking with you.
0: So our guests can immediately tell that you are from the south side of Chicago uh, by the <laughs> accents.
1: That Well, I once lived on the south side of Chicago, but no, I am uh, Australian. So I apologize in advance for sounding funny or saying things in a strange accent.
0: So, you know, Australia is definitely on on my bucket list of, of places to go along with that other island nearby, uh, New Zealand. Mm. So, but, y- you know, you came to the US, just uh, you went to the University of Chicago, is that right?
1: I did. I came to um, the, to Chicago to do grad school, to do my PhD there, and then stayed and worked. I um, lived in Princeton, New Jersey for a while, and then did a postdoc at Union Seminary in New York. So mostly East Coast and up in Chicago, but I loved the parts of America I was in. I was there for about a decade, so I feel a little bit American. That it,
0: feels, was a, it feels very a American. Chunk of my life. Yeah. We, we couldn't get you to stay? What, what brought you back to Australia?
1: Uh, I guess family lifestyle. I mean, life's, life's pretty good here. And, you know, my husband and I both have elderly, elderly parents and, um, you know, siblings and things. So it's, this is home. Yeah.
0: Well, um, you know, I'm always fascinated with, especially um, kind of um, native Australians, if you, if you will, you know, um, this is so off the topic of of your book or anything else, but (laughs) Kind of uh, tracking the history generationally, how, how long is, have, has your family been in Australia?
1: Well, we're actually migrants. So I was born and raised in South Africa to parents who themselves were migrants from the UK. So um, in some ways I've lived all over the world and I feel like a bit of a Roma. My dad had itchy feet. So we lived in the UK and um, we lived in Australia. We went back to South Africa and then back to Australia eventually. Um, So I feel like I had to choose my home in some ways, but I've been in Australia since I was about 12 apart from a decade in the U S and it, 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 yeah, it, it does feel like I fit. I love going back to South Africa. That will always have a little bit of my heart, but it's not where I want to live and it's not where I fit anymore.
0: I got to spend 10 days in Cape town this last uh, fall. It's beautiful. uh, It's incredible. Uh, It's an amazing country. Obviously, the the legacy there is, uh, it's a it's a part of our world, and that was why I was there mm-hmm. to navigate those spaces and to listen to those stories. But, um, incredible place, um, to say the least. Yeah. So, so our audience can kind of kind of understand what, what you know. I obvi- it's hard to put yourself into a box. But what kind of theological or denominational tribe would you say you uh, you uh, ascribe mm-hmm. to?
1: Well, I grew up Methodist. I spent a lot of years in my teenage years worshipping at a Baptist church uh, here in Melbourne. Uh, But these days I'm ordained in the Uniting Church tradition, which is an Australian national church. Uh, Here in the 70s, the Methodist, Presbyterians and Congregationalist traditions combined united to form this Uniting Church. So we're in that broadly reformed Protestant tradition uh, we probably sit on the slightly more liberal end of the spectrum, if you like, um, at least within the Australian landscape. Uh, yeah, we, for example, we've been ordaining women since we united, so we've been ordaining women for about forty years, which is is one way, I guess, of of mapping where a church sits in the landscape.
0: And and just in case our audience is you know putting two and two together that um, you know the Robins in Melbourne. And I'm in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. <laughs> uh, she made the sacrifice and she's talking at 6 a.m. her time. It's definitely four o'clock our time. So
1: yeah, hats off to you. I'm sipping on my coffee here and hoping I sound awake.
0: <laughs> you sound sound incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a you have a new book, uh, even the devil quotes scripture. This book reexamines how we come to the scriptures, read it, interpret it, and use it in our lives. You wrote, anyone can quote the Bible, but that does not mean they know it understand it or have interpreted it well. Quoting the Bible to make a point is for, it's a form of interpretation. It does not mean the one quoting is correct. What was the inspiration behind writing this book?
1: For me, it was meeting people who have been hurt by the Bible. Um, I've sat with uh, women who've been abused by supposedly Christian husbands who will quote the Bible while doing them harm. I've sat with survivors of gay conversion therapies who've again had the Bible weaponized against them um, to make them feel terrible about about themselves. And, of course, historically we don't have to go back too far in history, you know, to South Africa, to America, to the slavery tradition, to know that the Bible was used to justify all sorts of things. So part of it was a concern that still today, you know, I I keep meeting people who are hurt by the Bible. I also keep meeting um, particularly young Christians leaving fundamentalist spaces who have a deep love for the Bible that's what they've learned there they realize that a kind of a literalism no longer works They they can't really justify it it doesn't hold up to scrutiny but they want to know how to read this book and so I wanted to write something that would help those people deconstruct their kind of fundamentalism but I didn't want to just deconstruct I wanted to also reconstruct and say well well. You know, having torn down a kind of a fundamentalist approach, how can we actually read it? What 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 does it mean to read this Bible you know, ethically, faithfully for for what it is in the Christian tradition? Um, and yeah, so I had kind of two audiences in mind: those hurt by scripture, and those who are really genuinely grappling with it and and want to know what to do with this book. Um, but know that it it can't be read in that literalistic fashion.
0: Let's go back to that quote I read a moment ago. Anyone can quote the Bible, but that does not mean they know it, understand it, or have interpreted Mm. it well. Quoting the Bible to make a point is a form of interpretation. It does not mean the one quoting is correct. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there because it says Mm. so much about kind of the, the design behind this book.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, to quote or read something, is already an active interpretation, right? You've you've got a purpose in mind. You're assuming meaning, so you take any snippet of scripture. Often, when people kind of proof text, you know, the Bible says, um, they're either paraphrasing or they're taking half a verse or, you know, a phrase out of context. Um, but they're they're doing it for a particular aim. They've already imbued it with a with a certain meaning, and you know, sometimes we can tell that meaning is actually quite at odds when you look at the. The context, um, and and sometimes you know it's it's antithetical to the whole. So I mean, any anyone trained in biblical scholarship knows that there's always this tension between trying to hold the whole of Scripture together, the kind of deep message of the gospel, alongside the specifics of any passage. Um, and when we quote something and we pull it out of its context, there's a real danger we miss. Um, the whole of the gospel. And one of the things I argue in in the book is that really that if if there is a consistent ethic in the New Testament for interpreting the Bible, it is to love God and love your neighbour more. Um, So when we quote things and we don't have that kind of goal in mind, I think we're really in danger of misquoting, of misusing the Bible. I don't know if that's what you were hoping to get at with that question.
0: Yeah. uh, We'll get into that. Push me. (laughs) Yeah. The the title a bit here in just a bit. But um, you know, faith in many tradition works in Mm. absolutes, or maybe another word is certainty. Therefore, there is a a comfort in reading scriptures with a black and white, Mm. you know, uh, definite or certain mindset. What might be the limitations of this particular way of understanding reading and applying the scriptures?
1: Um, mm. I think when we um go to the scripture to read, you know, to find something that supports our theology, our worldview, um and and this is not to say I should side note. you know there are t- there are times any of us might pick up the Bible and go to it because we're just looking for some kind of connection with God. We're looking for a word of comfort or something like that. And I, I'm not criticizing that, but when we go to it to simply, kind of almost weaponize it, you know, find proofs for our existing positions, there's a real danger we're not letting it speak to us. We're simply using it. Um, So some of the words I use a lot in the book are curiosity and humility. And these ideas that actually we come to the Bible with a posture of openness, And with genuine curiosity, what might God be, you know, why were these stories written down? What might God be trying to say to us? Um, You know, even with these bizarre and sometimes strange stories, how can we make sense of them? And if we're not genuinely open in those sorts of questions, I think we can miss stuff. We can miss the depth as well as the messiness and the complexity and the profundity of some of some of the scriptures. So, I mean, the title came to me late, even the devil quotes scripture. Um, but you know, because in the temptation stories that we get in Matthew and Luke, uh, in the midst of testing Jesus in the desert, the desert, the devil quotes scripture kind of at him, you know, do this if, you know, and, and gives him a piece of the Bible and Jesus quotes scripture back. It's kind of a little battle of the proof texts. Um, but it just goes to show anyone can quote scripture, but if their, their goal or their aim is misguided, um, they're simply using the Bible. They're not, Honoring the Bible, I guess would be one way to put it.
0: We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu.
1: Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast,
0: Um, you mm. have to be physically close to another person, incredibly vulnerable, trusting that while the other may win, you won't be permanently harmed. You also can't wrestle with one foot in and the other out. I'd love to get your perspective on what this looks like on an individual and then on, on a communal level. Mm.
1: Yeah. So there I was playing with the story of Jacob wrestling with God that we we get in Genesis 32 and. Um, which is an amazing story and, and one that leaves Jacob profoundly changed. So I think for me, that's a, a really helpful metaphor. It's been meaningful for me at various points in my life uh, as a way of, you know, really capturing the, our relationship with God and particularly our relationship with God through the Bible. And it is about bringing your whole self in. So I once had a professor say to me, we don't read the Bible, the Bible reads us. And I must say at the time I thought that was just a bizarre, bizarre and unhelpful thing to say. Um, but there is this sense if we bring our whole selves to Scripture, it can hold up a mirror to us. It can confront and challenge our behaviours. Um, it means we, you know, it, it, in some ways that similar for faith as a whole, if we're bringing our whole selves, we're we're incredibly vulnerable and we might think of that in terms of spiritual practices, but I don't think we always adopt that posture when it comes to the Bible to be vulnerable to what it might be saying to us, um, to what it might be, you know, challenging us. Um, and then there's the wrestling that I guess is a bit more intellectual, which is we we wrestle with what words mean and what's going on historically. We equally, you know, if the Bible's asking questions of us, we equally are asking questions of the Bible. Um and I say to students all the time in class that there is there is no question we can ask of scripture that that probably somebody hasn't asked in the last two thousand years. but there's also no question that God can't handle. um you know that that when we come to scripture, if if we're asking an honest question, we don't need to worry about offending God in some way. You know part of wrestling is just that all in I, I want to know I'm throwing myself in and um you know, and that and that means interrogating the other. So it's a bit of a two-way thing, I think, for me, in that wrestling metaphor.
0: There's another quote that I want to kind of settle into for a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I do not believe the Bible is inerrant or infallible. I believe it is inspired by God and that God worked with and through human beings to communicate God's message because God chose the work through humans. The Bible itself is infused with cultural limitations and human bias. As well as human imagination and creativity, you know, outside of evangelicalism, very mm. few people use this language to describe the Bible. However, you know, many were raised with a view of Scripture that parallels the views of inerrancy and infallibility, and in turn, it, it shapes so many um, ways that people view, um, you know, the views people have on things like gender and race and mm. sexuality and economics and politics and and so much more. I guess first question is, is, is that a fair assessment that biblical inerrancy can be tied to many gender, race, and sexual exclusive worldviews?
1: Yeah, it, it really is. If we trace the history of, of these sort of key terms, inerrancy and infallibility, infallibility, and as you say, they're key terms only in certain pockets of Christianity, where they appear often in doctrinal statements, they're the kind of line in the sand, you're, you're either in our tribe or not. But um infallibility has a longer history. You'll get this kind of like the Bible is without error, language going back um, to Augustine and um, other early church kind of writers, although there they kind of talk about you know that God's message is is without error. God is incapable of of error, but they'll acknowledge that humans wrote it down. so of course there's errors in the Bible so that they're kind of hedging their bets a bit. This idea of inerrancy, um, really is a 19th and 20th century doctrine. And it is a reaction to a couple of things. One of them is what we call higher criticism or the kind of um, really came out of Germany, historical critical method, this sort of using um, the insights of a scientific worldview to examine scripture. Um, And then more recently, particularly in the American scene in the, the late 20th century, we get the Chicago Statement on biblical inerrancy where it's a direct reaction to liberalism and particularly to the teaching of evolution and to feminism. Um, So we can trace that history of uh, increasing claims and language appearing in these evangelical circles of the inerrancy of the Bible, um, this idea that the Bible is without error, and they're using it to, to kind of almost make the Bible a kind of a science book to combat things like teaching on evolution, and particularly to combat feminism and therefore teachings around gender. And um, a a scholar called Angela Parker has also recently argued in another book that these ideas get tied to white supremacy. So we can see gender, race, certain ideas of science and how the world works um, all kind of informing that the development of that doctrine. And there's a certain irony here because often the Christians who talk about inerrancy or infallibility will say, you know, the rest of us, people like me, have sold out to culture. You know, we're, we're affected by the liberal culture or secular culture. And yet these very doctrines themselves are deeply cultural in that they're a reaction to cultural movements. Um, so, I mean, that, that always makes me smile slightly, even though I think those are potentially quite problematic doctrines
0: you know i guess you know as you're inviting people to wrestle with scripture especially if something's coming out of uh, a camp in which inerrancy and infallibility is just kind of the view of scripture mm. you know picking this apart uh, can feel quite literally like tearing people away from the bedrock of of their beliefs is that a fair assessment yeah. too
1: I think so. I think so. I think if you've been taught, as some churches teach, that that the only faithful way to think about scripture is in these terms, and that that is the only way of sort of recognizing that there's a divine hand in scripture, it feels like you're you're ripping apart the kind of foundational idea of faith that th- this is a sacred text. So one of the things I try and do in the book is unpack, you know, different language and that. Um, you know, there's lots of words we can use to describe the Bible, you know, holy, sacred, authoritative, um, you know, and Christians do, inspired is another one, and inspired often gets conflated with inerrancy and infallibility, but I want to kind of separate it out and say something can be inspired by God and um, And Or even, you know, the language there, that's a whole other story we could get into. That language that is often translated inspired is more like a God-breathed or a life-giving. But something can be inspired in English, and and that doesn't mean it's without error or it's um, to be interpreted in a literalistic way. So in these traditions that teach these doctrines, it's often all flattened down, and you have to believe these certain things. And along with that comes a certain kind of interpretation, which tends to be literalistic. And I wanted to just tease them all out. I didn't set out to do this, actually, but as I started writing the book, I realised we couldn't talk about how to interpret the Bible until we really stopped and talked about what it is. Because what you believe it is and how you think it behaves, um, the expectations we have are going to deeply inform our interpretation. So I kind of felt I had to clear these things out of the way and, and argue why I thought that they were not helpful. And it's worth pointing out for your listeners, this language of inerrancy and infallibility does not appear in the bible this this is not how the bible talks about itself these are very much later human doctrines as we've tried to give you know a certain kind of authority to the bible but these are not inherent to the bible this is not how it 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 references itself in any kind of way
0: there are well educated ministers who Believe um, the Bible is inerrant and infallible. I would say mm. not at all within the movement of cooperative Baptist fellowship, but within many mm. within the United States and, and, and different churches' expressions, you know, let alone the common Christian and church goer that have no background in biblical criticism to have the tools mm. to navigate shifts to see scripture through a particular cultural lens. So, how do local church pastors equip their people to wrestle mm-hmm. with? their traditional understanding of scripture while still holding it up as I love how you put it messy, human, unclean, and all the more interesting for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it starts with being um, fairly honest and transparent often. I mean, I'm, I'm a preacher and I pastored a church for a number of years. Um, you know, sometimes we talk about the bible and we're doing biblical interpretation in sermons all the time but we're not always um kind of showing our method if you like so sometimes i think it is not not every sermon cuz you probably drive people batty but you know sometimes it is worth stopping and actually quite self-consciously sort of saying you know, how do we interpret something like this? Look at the kinds of moves I'm making. Um, what are the possibilities? Sort of helping show people that we do make these steps. It's not just a direct link from I read these words on a page and now I'm preaching you this sermon. There's a whole lot of work in between, hopefully. Um, but and I think the other thing is to, I mean, in Bible studies and stuff, to, to kind of help people examine their own expectations. So I start every New Testament intro class by asking um, students to just write down their own statement of what they think the Bible is, apart from anything it tells me where they're coming from. But I'll get everything from classic doctrinal kind of the Bible is inerrant statements through to, oh, this is an interesting historic book written by a bunch of people back in the first and second centuries. Um, And somewhere in between is the full range of the church's tradition. But I think we've got to help people unpack these words, help them unpack their own expectations. We often carry stuff we've been taught as young children that we've never really questioned as adults. So this is where Christian education is so useful, just generally in church communities. Um, And to, you know, I think be pretty, I mean, pastors can be pretty honest about what they think about the Bible, I think we can talk about, you know, why we might consider it authoritative and that that's a posture of faith. So I talk in the book about, you know, we choose, I as a Christian choose to kind of submit myself to the authority of the Bible, Um, not because the Bible is necessarily inherently authoritative for every person on the planet, but because as a person of faith, this is what my tradition says is the word of God it contains the word of God and therefore it speaks in a particular way. Um, that's a choice. That That's part of being a disciple in this kind of tradition for me. Um, that might be too qualified for some people who would want to claim the authority of scripture is beyond that. But if you do that, you're immediately then in conflict with other traditions that have their own sacred texts. And I, I think we can claim a truth and a particularity in ways that does not set us up in conflict with needing to dominate or discount the authority of other traditions.
0: This podcast is presented to you by a new series, the Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. For modern people, we have uh, this book printed in hundreds of translations with thousands of ways of, of binding it. Um, mm. There are tables of content, chapters, verses, references, and glossaries. But for those that first interacted with the scriptures, it was an oral form leading to to conversations. Yeah. Um, So I guess two questions here, you know, first is have we missed out on a critical purpose of scriptures by making it so easy to access?
1: (laughs) Ooh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, no, this is where I am a a Protestant and I do love the fact that the Bible got put into the hands of the people, (laughs) um, even though that means also people can misuse it, but so could the people in power. Um, You know, I think in, in a culture, as you say, those first first Christian communities heard these texts read. Um, and it, it is helpful to hear the Bible read and spoken. We encounter it differently. We notice different things when we hear it rather than read the words on the page. Um, and I think one of the effects, I mean, we also in that ancient culture, we know people were capable of memorizing large chunks of texts because of the way education and oral culture worked. Um, but it also means people encountered a kind of a hole. They didn't like, I don't know what what the church you go to does, but I mean, often in church we read ten verses or five verses, right? Um I think in the ancient world when scripture was read, they read an entire letter. They would have read you know most of a gospel or at least large chunks of a gospel in a setting. We weren't hearing these snippets removed from their context. So, in a way, I think, we miss out as contemporary readers. Um, maybe maybe part of your question gets to that the accessibility means we can dip in and out as we like, and there's a danger, there's something that gets missed out in that. Um, but I do love the fact that anyone can pick up a Bible and read it in their own language and um, hopefully find some meaning in it. I,
0: I somewhat asked that question tongue-in-cheek, you know, the, <laughs> <laughs> that we... You know, everybody has a Bible, it seems, but no one actually interacts with it. And, mm. and then maybe, you know, the reason it was intended, which gets to kind of one of the uh, chapters I love most about the book, which is how do, you know, how do we have a conversation with the scriptures? Mm.
1: Yeah. um I mean, we've, we've got to be, and, and I say this, I'm in some ways I'm preaching to my own tradition when I, when I. Write, a, write some of this book because in the more liberal church, we've almost stopped doing Bible study in the way that I did in those evangelical Baptist churches I went to where, you know, there was a very strong focus on regular Bible reading and and Bible study in groups and that kind of stuff. Um, I think there's a loss when we stop doing that because to be in conversation with the Bible means we need to know it and we need to be regularly encountering it Um, so even though it's hard and sometimes maybe even dare I say boring (laughs) regular reading of scripture is part of being in the conversation just as you know regularly chatting to a family member is part of it's part of keeping up that relationship um so there's got to be a familiarity and in some ways I wrote this book as a You know, all the reasons I said before about wanting to deconstruct and combat some fundamentalist ideas, but also to my own more liberal tradition of wanting to say, hey, but we can't just, you know, read the nice bits and ignore the rest and not be regularly conversing with this text because it is, um, you know, it's absolutely central to Christian faith. And it it shapes us if we're in conversation where we're being shaped by it in the same way as any relationship. When you're conversing, you know it's in subtle ways, but over time that really shapes your worldview.
0: Jesus, not Paul, is the savior of the world, and yet many shape their Christ- <laughs> christological worldview by looking at Jesus through Paul. You know, loose interpretation of Paul is is why we get gender exclusivity and sexism and homophobia and political idolatry however if, if you invite people to shift their lens to see people like paul and peter and james among the hebrew scriptures by, by looking at them through jesus um mm. you know then then we have a jesus centric view of scripture so how do we practically do that
1: Ooh. um That's a great question, and I'm not really sure, Um, except again, to kind of hold the whole together. I mean, there's no doubt that Paul is our most influential Christian thinker when it comes to the Bible, in that his letters are the earliest. They do set the tone for so much um, of Christianity, and it's impossible to kind of bracket him out. I think... um, We've got to hold any, I mean, we've got to see this as different kind of texts too, right? So the Jesus we encounter in the Gospels is a Jesus told in narrative. Um, So we're kind of getting the theological worldview and the teaching coming to us through story where we've got to do a certain kind of work to kind of say, well, what's the theology, um, you know, implied here? It's not always explicit statements of, you know, Jesus died so. Um, Paul gives us far more of those explicit statements because he's kind of writing theology out loud as he thinks. Um, And so it makes him perhaps a bit more quotable and a bit more direct in some ways. We have so many famous Pauline teachings. But again, I think with Paul we've got to see he's also doing something highly contextual. He's writing letters to certain communities who have particular needs and and these are kind of, we're listening in on his conversation with them. These are not sort of, um, I'm, I'm trying to say this carefully because I don't want to sound like a complete heretic, but these are not kind of uh, eternal teachings in some kind of like systematic doctrine, you know, beamed down from on high. We're listening to Paul engage with different communities, combat certain teaching, do localised kind of messaging in the same way that maybe if you took a sermon today, you know, anyone's sermon which made sense and was a great sermon in its local community and you kind of said, well, this is the teaching for the whole world, it wouldn't always work because what we say locally and contextually um, starts to sound differently in different contexts. So I think one way to deal with Jesus and Paul is to remember the kind of literature we're reading. Um, and the other is to, you know, always, always for me, um, you know, it, it's a terrible 90s, you know, bracelet joke, but the what would Jesus do <laughs> type thing I think works here too. What, You know, what would Jesus do with the scripture? Does this fit with Jesus' behavior and, and, and message and, and the way Jesus talked and acted about God would be maybe one very practical practical thing people could ask themselves
0: and as your journey alongside people in their re-examination of, of the bible you invite them to see it through a hermeneutic of love you wrote mm. if we want to interpret the bible like the bible interprets itself then our focus must be on interpretation that leads to loving god and loving neighbor as crazy as it sound, and so, so much of this is I'm interpreting this through the evangelical lens that I was raised in. You know, so mm-hmm. it's like it's not like I'm making this judgment from you know not within the ballpark of 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 what I experienced growing up. You mm-hmm. um, know, I would dare say that many who who are in need of reexamining their understanding of scripture, if they're coming out, especially from an inerritus or an infallibility perspective may or may not have a generous understanding of, of love. This is a tradition Mm. that tends to talk about Jesus love, but God's judgment, which also has a lot to do with misinterpretation of the Trinity, but that's a whole nother conversation, you know? So (laughs) how do we, maybe if we're not familiar with the love you're talking about, how do we familiarize ourselves with it and maybe define that kind of um, hermeneutic of love that you're getting at within the book?
1: Yeah. So let me go back a step because I think you raised something really important there in your question, which is, um, you know, just like I said before, our concept of the Bible, what we think it is and how it behaves is going to inform our interpretation. Our idea of God is going to strongly affect our interpretation as well. So if we come with this idea that we're guilty and miserable sinners and God is incredibly wrathful and judgmental and I mean I'm describing my teenage self now where I used to confess my sins before bed every night because I was genuinely worried if I died in the night and hadn't confessed my sins I would go to hell um that that kind of worldview um it's a worldview infused with fear not with love so in in some ways there's no neat answer to that this is a lifetime of kind of being with God and being shaped by grace, but it so it is worth people you know not only interrogating their own beliefs about the Bible, but also their ideas of God and how God is, um, because it is quite hard to move from wrath to love. And as you've just said, Andy, it's it's also deeply problematic when we separate out both God and the different parts of scripture and go, oh, Old Testament God is mean and wrathful and Jesus is all love and light. Um, You you don't have to read much of the Bible to see that actually that that gets disrupted very quickly. One of the reasons I ended up going to love, and I I genuinely started this project without a really strong idea of what I would find, but I wanted to look um, at the way the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament, including Jesus and Paul and others, and to see if there was a consistent ethic. Because there are times that Paul, for example, uses scripture very allegorically, and there are times that Paul uses scripture quite literally. So it's not like we can say he always quotes scripture in this kind of way. But underneath all of that sort of teaching is this verse from Leviticus 19, 18: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And one the argument I make is that this, this teaching that comes in the midst of um sort of holiness and purity codes in Leviticus about loving your neighbor becomes the dominant ethic of Judaism at the time of Jesus and Paul um so i'm be, i'm very careful to say Jesus did not invent this this is not that Jews were hateful and Jesus was all about love this already existed in Judaism we see it everywhere in rabbinic literature um variations of it in in Philo and other um you know, Jewish writers from around the same period and in intertestamental texts. So um, uh, things that are not in the Christian canon for the most part, but were written in those couple of hundred years between what we call the Old Testament and New Testament. And this is this idea that this is the golden rule, the royal rule, as James says, that you you love God and you love your neighbour as yourself. And in the Gospels, even when Jesus is fighting with scribes and Pharisees about, you know, how to interpret the law, when he says, you know, he asks the scribe or the lawyer, as it is in Luke's gospel, you know, what, what is the most important law? And he says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and Jesus is like, you're right. I mean, they agree as, as two Jews arguing over how to interpret the Torah, they both agree that this is absolutely central. This is the key. Um, Despite the fact they'll agree, they'll disagree about what it means. So, I talk about a hermeneutic of love that is a lens of love and that any Christian, you don't have to have gone to seminary or be, you know, super educated about theology to interpret the Bible in a way where you're asking a couple of simple questions, which are how does, you know, what I'm reading help me love God more and how does it help me love my neighbour more? And that might mean we read more sympathetically to the characters in the story. It might mean we recognise um, there's grace towards them. Uh, it it might mean we recognise God's actions of faithfulness in 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 certain biblical passages that that help us, you know, give thanks to God. Um, but it also is a bit of a checkpoint, I think, that if we're reading and interpreting something, and and particularly those bits you've mentioned that would, you know, that are sometimes used to either tell women to submit or um, gay people that their lives are wrong or, or anything else, if that interpretation is not actually loving and building up someone, it is at odds with Scripture itself. Um, it is at, at odds with what Augustine called the goal of Scripture, which is to, to love our neighbours more. So it, 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 it can be both a really edifying thing and also a bit of a checkpoint, I think, to ask how does my interpretation of this Scripture, how does what I'm reading, help me love God and my neighbor more.
0: We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, a model ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then a model ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. I guess staying in that same vein, I, I want to go back to that quote. If, if we want to interpret the Bible like the Bible interprets itself, then our focus must be on the interpretation that leads to a loving God and, and loving neighbor. I know this sounds so so silly. It's, it's kind of going back to the how do we view the Bible through the lens of Jesus. But... um how do we, you know, practically do this? You know, Mm -hmm. you know, I I wonder if there's some examples of um, maybe some problematic old Testament scriptures, um, just uh, leading a conversation just recently in a, in a church, um, navigating the book of Joshua. Um, Mm. and you know, there's a lot to be said about the book of Joshua and the historical, um, you know, relevance of, of some of the the things that are quotes that are, you know, things that are done in there, excuse me. Um, but how, how, you know, here's a book that's about mass genocide <laughs> to clear <Yeah>. up <laughs> a land, right? You know, it's like, yes. how, how do we see that through a, a hermeneutic of, of love that's and then love. turn around? And obviously Jesus-centric, gospel-centric stories, we see that through love, but maybe a better example might be, you know, paul's laundry list of those that won't inherit the kingdom of god you know Mm. so how do we practically do that when we're looking at biblical interpretation maybe thinking through for the common person the common christian the average churchgoer somebody who's not Mm. gone through theological education is maybe what i'm thinking of and a a really long and incoherent rambling question
1: (laughs) no not at all um so I think I mean let's let's go to the extreme example we get these you know these stories in Joshua and in other parts of the Hebrew Bible that are stories of war of genocide of taking land um there are stories of rape um I think so so the love is not immediate like this just this is not an an easy thing to do but I think it, we might um it might give us sympathy. So often we read, so take the Joshua stories. We we read these as some sort of God-ordained, you know, the Israelites marched into Canaan and took the land and hooray, everyone's cheering because we're supposed to be on God's side. Well, if we're reading for love, we might actually ask some questions at the text about who this affected and, and how they would have felt about having their land stolen. Like, yes, there's victors, but who are we not noticing in the story? whose voice is silent. Um, we might, and that might lead us to wonder, you know, if, if someone who had their land invaded in the ancient world and their family wiped out because this other group of people came in who were justifying it, that God is on their side, so let's leave that aside for the moment, um, you know, but it might lead us to wonder in the contemporary world, you know, how, how it feels to have your land taken from you, um, what it's like to live through war. And here in Australia, and I think America has some similar dynamics, um, our Indigenous people live with huge rates of impoverishment um, and generational trauma because of what white people did when we came and took the land. So I think when we read this for love, instead of just assuming we're on God's side and that that makes it kind of good, our love might actually help us be more empathetic So maybe we trade out the word love with words like um, how would it give us more empathy for certain groups of people that we don't perhaps naturally align ourselves with? How does it um, lead us to more compassion? Um, I have no idea what the experience of an Indigenous person is like and what it means to be disconnected from your people and culture and land, but perhaps if I read the Bible in this way, I can start to at least imagine and start to sit with some empathy for, um, you know, what that might do, do to a person. If if we go to Paul and to those laundry lists of all the people who won't um, enter the kingdom of heaven, um, I think for me, they're leading with reading with love is, again, it is about a certain kind of compassion and empathy, but also a kind of honesty. So... We focus so quickly in the church on the bits about sexual immorality, um, language of where we get pornea immorality, or some of the different words we get that are sometimes interpreted to as some kind of homosexual activity. Um, but we also get in those lists things like liars. I mean, who of us has never lied in our lives? Um, you know, who of us has not been, you know, jealous or angry or bitter or at at some point. So, I think reading for love maybe invites us into a certain kind of humility and honesty about where we might be. And if we see ourselves in that list, we might be less inclined to judge others instead of pointing at them and going, Oh, you're on this list and I'm not. Um, we recognize there are some common human um, experiences of doing wrong or being disconnected from God. And and on the sort of, on the big buzz one, the homosexuality stuff, we might also recognise that, you know, this list made sense in the first century to Paul or to the communities he was writing to. Um, but interpreting it for love means we don't just kind of weaponize it against people in today's world. So if if taking that in a kind of literalistic way and assuming that what Paul meant um, by some kind of homosexual activity in the first century is exactly what we mean by a homosexual orientation in today's world is, I think, to do an injustice both to the language of the text but also um, because I say that because understandings of human sexuality have changed so much. But it's also um, not interpreting for love if, if we're just condemning people without doing that hermeneutical work of thinking through the implications of our interpretation and, and saying, well, maybe Paul meant something else. Um, Maybe he's, he's battling a different set of, of pressures. And like a lot of things, we don't have to take that literally because there's huge parts of the Bible. We do not take literally um, in, you know, in today's world.
0: I guess last thing I'm thinking through the book, when I was reading it, um, I was struck by how you're able to take uh, something that most people would learn through theological education, right? At a university or mm-hmm. master's level, and take that wisdom and knowledge and put it into such a, a practical resource for individuals who are earnestly trying to re-examine the scripture and to create the tools around them to do that. Why why was it so important for you to create both, you know, and I mean this in the best way possible, the most brilliant and dynamic of learnings around uh, the scripture from Mm -hmm. academic perspective into such a practical resource?
1: Oh, well, thank you. Um, I think for me, we have this divide in academia where, you know, some of the, some of the scholarship I draw on the in the book, you know, uh, are things that are out there in highly technical versions. Uh, I'm, I'm drawing on brilliant scholars who've talked to, for gener- for um, not centuries, sorry, decades now, about um, you know rewritten Bible and the way the Bible interacts with itself. But that rarely kind of trickles down to the pews. And uh, you know, like I said at the beginning, that the the audience I had in mind are regular Christians who will not go do a masters in theology um but they want to know how to read this book and i i think you know we academics need to be better at making our work accessible so i was determined that this be something um I guess smart and scholarly, but really accessible for people that that did not rely on you having three degrees to read it. And you know, in some ways, I I feel a bit vocationally about this. This is something I can do. There there are people who write highly technical stuff brilliantly, um, and I'm probably not one of them. But I can take the technical stuff and make it more approachable. And um, you know, in some ways, that that's the the preacher in me that's never left, even though I'm now a, an academic
0: our guest is robin whitaker the book is even the devil Quotes scripture you can stay connected with her by visiting robinwhitaker.com robin it's been a joy conversing with you thank you for challenging us to see that amidst the diversity of ways that biblical authors interpret other biblical authors an ethic emerges love god and love neighbor thank you andy we are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of Scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of Scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at NRSVUEBible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a Model Ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.